Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. Over the past week, an uprising erupted first in Minneapolis and then St. Paul after the police killing of George Floyd, a black man choked to death on camera. The Minneapolis Police Department has a long history of both police murder and racism. A class action lawsuit brought by black officers included allegations that the leader of the police union had been spotted wearing a white power patch. This blurring of the line between officers and white supremacists is a common problem in the Midwest, including both police and prison guards. As of yesterday, prisoners in Georgia are protesting COVID-19 vulnerability and the denial of basic resources. In Macon State Prison, prisoners have experienced drastic cuts in shower and food access with only two meals per day. What you're hearing now is audio from the protest inside the facility, which was suppressed with tear gas. On April 22nd, a rebellion took place at Westville Correctional Facility in Westville, Indiana. A statement from IDOC Watch reads, quote, People caged on a unit where many people were getting sick with COVID-19 and receiving no medical care briefly overpowered the guards and took their keys. At least one guard was injured. 85% of incarcerated people tested for COVID-19 at Westville CF have tested positive, and in April, incarcerated people were still not allowed to wear masks. Only 209 of the 3,100 people caged at Westville CF have been tested for COVID-19 to date. The DOC has tried to deny any uprising took place, first labeling it a disturbance in the press, and then flat out denying anything happened at all in later press conferences. Just as they have lied about their handling of the COVID-19 pandemic, so have they lied about this event, unquote. They go on to say that, quote, the people who are on the unit have been tortured and brutalized repeatedly in order to get them to provide information on who started the rebellion. They were sent to the Westville Control Unit, formerly known as Maximum Control Complex, where they were repeatedly beaten, starved and dehydrated, and subjected to intense sexual and psychological torture, including guards rubbing their genitalia on their food, spanking them, calling them names, and threatening to rape their mothers and other family members, intentionally coughing on them in order to spread COVID-19, poking holes in the two cups of water distributed each day while held in cells with no running water, forcing them to urinate and defecate on their food trays because there are no toilets in their cells, denying them medical care, and denying Muslims their religious rights. At this point, there are around 13 people who have refused to give information, in part for fear of what would happen to them if they did. They have now been moved to RHU, a building that has not been used at Westville Correctional Facility for years, and they are being held in the basement of the building known as the Dungeon. Their property has all been confiscated. They have not been able to contact their families for over a week now. And the last their loved ones heard, two of them were being dragged unconscious from their cells with only underwear on after being severely beaten. One had a sheet tied around his neck. None of the people being tortured have received conduct reports. Military officers stationed at Westville CF have witnessed the torture and abuse and have sworn that they will testify to what they've seen." Unquote. We now have calls from two mothers of these inmates at Westville Correctional Facility who speak to the situation. Here they are. When they all got put in the segregation unit, 
they were in the same pod with the COVID-19 positive patients. The guards would go straight from treating and in, in the cells, hands-on with these COVID patients. They would come straight out, go over to the other guys, and they would pull down their mask and cough on them and laughing, hysterical laughing, saying, you know, laughing, ha now you got COVID, you know. And they were laughing, knowing these guys ain't going to be able to get tested because of their age and race, you know. My son's white. He was told because he was white at 26, he cannot get tested. Yeah, they did this just time after time, multiple times a day. It just wasn't once. It was multiple times. Like every time they'd go in one of these sick patient, you know, uh, rooms or cells or whatever, they would come out and just cough on people, pull their mask down and cough. And, you know, whether it was true or not, if they could get, if that's how they got COVID, people were, you know, dying from this. It's not funny. And you're coughing all over our hubland. Some of the 22 that was being held, like they they were, I believe, African-Americans, but they were Muslim. That was their religion. And they were being refused. I think they have to give them at a certain time. They have to let them do some religious thing and give them a mat. They were refusing these guys. They were refusing these guys the right to to their religion. They would not give them prayer mats. They would not. I think they have to let them out of their cell or something. They have to do something. They were totally refusing them. We don't have any at this time. You know, you're insane. I mean, just excuses after excuses. That is a religion. You cannot do that. That's illegal. And they was doing this. I don't know how many men, but I know there was more than two. And they were being refused because they were flooding their rooms because of that. Flooded it a couple of times. They flooded their rooms because they were being refused to practice their religion. My son is being beaten in that prison. I've received so many calls. Other parents have received calls saying, we got to do something. You know, they're hurting your kid. They're beating your kid. And it's not just my son. It's other people. They have them in administrative segregation. The last time I spoke with my son was a week ago. And then after uh, that video was posted, of them doing that demonstration at the warden's house that evening. I got a call saying that they beat my son again and another boy so bad and took him out of there, and they didn't know where they were. They drug him out. They said they said that my son was unconscious in his underwear when they watched him drag him out, and uh, I have not heard from him since. In fact, they said they were going to take him to another segregation, which doesn't even make any sense, and nobody's heard from their son since. I've, I've spoken to several parents. I keep in very close contact with several parents, and nobody has heard from their kids, their loved ones. When the disturbance happened, um, it happened in their unit, and uh, they um, put them all there, and I I believe the last time I spoke with, I'm not sure who I spoke with. I want to say there was 13 or 14. So the day before yesterday, we received um, a message from inside the side unit, and um, they're desperate for help. They said they are um, beating us every day. They're starving us. They haven't fed us in a week. 
please call state, call anybody you can get a hold of and get us help in here. Two or more guards at a time are coming in and beating them. There's no cameras. And they're just desperate for help. They're, these men are afraid for their lives. They're they're asking for anybody to help them. Because of because of the disturbance, they say that they don't know who started it or who did it and they wanna know and basically nobody's saying anything. And I mean, I've spoken to several of the boys that have said I don't know who started it, and if I did, I wouldn't say anything anyway. They're incarcerated. They're they're not going to tell on each other. I mean, these are people of different races that normally wouldn't even probably be talking to each other. They have made a pact that they are not going to give up on each other. Like, they truly are afraid that they're going to die in there. I want my son out of there. The government needs to go in there. They need to go in there and they need to find out what's going on there. Them boys, they didn't, there was no reason for them to move them into another seg. Segregation, they told me that, they told several people that they didn't even know if they had cameras there. They're scared they're, that they can't win, you know. They can't, they can't do anything. They can't even use the phone. When they give them a glass of water that they poke, poke holes in the styrofoam cups, one day all they gave them was some carrots. I mean, this is just what I was, some of the parents have been told that, that they're um, rubbing their privates, like, on their bread and then giving it to them after they see it. And them boys are starving in there. Right. This did not come from my son. This came from um, one of the other boys there. Because uh-huh. I'm not even able to talk to my son. The other boys have been able to use the phone, but my son hasn't. I've talked to him two times since April 22nd. They said that they were were rubbing their genitals on their bread and poking holes in their cups and when they put everybody in cuffs, you know, they slammed my son down so hard his his hands, his fingers were, he said his, they said his fingers look like they're on backwards and they said that, like, when that they were sick and when they need medical attention, they're so intimidated by the guards taking them, you know what I'm saying, like taking them where nobody can see. Uh-huh. They're not denying medical attention because they don't want it. They're scared to go do it. I know that there was points that they didn't, they didn't have clothes. Yeah. I was told that my son was, I guess, naked for like five days in the cell, and all he had was a blanket. And now, now I don't even know where my son is. And I'm not gonna stop fighting. Somebody had a uh, called the other parents and said that the that the last time that they saw my son and another boy was they they beat them both up and they said that they pulled, it's hard for me to talk about. They said that they pulled my son out. He just had underwear or boxers or what either, or I don't know, and that he was unconscious. And nobody has heard from their kids since. And that was like the morning after they posted the uh, video over at the Wharton's house. I felt, I feel like that's wrong. I mean, I feel like that was... I just thought that was kind of a coincidence, you know. 
I had just spoken to my son the day before, and he seemed like he was doing okay. Um, I had ordered him books, and he actually got them. That was the only time I talked to him. And I don't know what happened from that moment until to the next day. But for my son to tell me, you and, and all the boys to tell telling anybody that will listen, help us, you know, save us. Because they're gonna end up killing us. And they tell and they tell me and they tell other parents, they're gonna end up killing your son. We end this episode with a conversation I had with Lauren Brinkley-Rubenstein, who's with the COVID Prison Project. I'm Lauren Brinkley-Rubenstein. I'm an assistant professor at the University of North Carolina in the Center for Health Equity Research. And about six weeks ago, we started the COVID Prison Project, which is tracking information on testing positive cases and deaths among people who are incarcerated and staff across the country um, in correctional settings, primarily prisons. As soon as the pandemic, you know, was on everyone's radar, we immediately knew that this was going to be um, an issue of particular importance in jails and prisons across the country. And we, based on our previous work of prison health and the impact of Um, being incarcerated on individuals' health, we knew that um, in prisons, it's very difficult to engage in a number of preventative interventions, right? Places usually um, have dormitory-style living. People move together, they eat together, they recreate together, and so the ability to social distance, uh, we knew was going to be very difficult. In addition, we knew that people who are incarcerated tend to have a higher burden of chronic Conditions, and so they would be more susceptible to severity of illness of COVID-19. Um, and so that was something we were also thinking about. And we also know that public health responses in general tend to completely leave out, if not marginalize, people who um, are in carceral settings. And so we knew that this was something that probably was not going to get the attention that it deserved and that we needed to step up to the plate and start tracking numbers so that we would know what's happening in these facilities and we would also be able to you know make claims about better uh, transparency or accountability um, of the prison systems across the country what made you decide that this data needed to be you know made public and what overall have you been able to determine so far in your 6 weeks of capturing this data? We knew that um, because correctional populations are often, um, you know, not a part of bigger data sets and they're often not the focus of prevention efforts, um, that uh, we were going to have to track it. And we wanted to publicly report what was happening so that we could make a case for states to have more transparent data when that wasn't available. And we also wanted to be able to show what the numbers look like. And I think the other thing that we've been able to to do that's important is compare some of the data that we have to uh, the general population, because I think raw numbers um, that aren't contextualized, uh, you know, of number of cases or testing inside um, of prison is, is hard to make sense of. And so we've really made an effort to try to look at 
comparisons of what's happening in prisons, both, you know, calculating um, death rates for mortality rates, um, looking at testing rates, um, and then looking at what's happening in the states that those prisons are uh, located in to try to make the case that um, the epicenter of the epicenter really is in correctional settings uh, across America. Have you learned anything uh, through gathering this data that's been surprising? That's a great question. I think sadly, not much of what we've found has been very surprising. The, um, you know, a great example is that, um, you know, the CDC guidelines uh, around, you know, who to test in, in prison and jail settings has been kind of lagging behind state policies uh, relevant to congregate living facilities has almost exclusively focused on um, skilled nursing facilities um, and either, you know, briefly mentioned prisons and jails or not mentioned them at all. And then if we look at the testing rates compared to both other congregate facilities or um, the states that those facilities are in, the testing rates are um, almost always lagging behind. And Anytime there's been any universal testing, which has happened in some facilities in some states, they almost always have been a result of an, a very imminent outbreak. And so there's been very uh, little focus on proactive comprehensive testing. And so there have been really no surprises related to the response. And then the other thing that we've seen is that when, well, the other thing we've seen is that, you know, case rates inside are very high compared to state rates. And then the testing rates just tend to lag. When an outbreak does happen, say the recent outbreaks in North Carolina and Ohio facilities, yep. what data do you actually receive and what do the outbreak data sets look like? Yeah. So what we've been doing is we've been going in daily and pulling down public numbers from publicly reported data. So um, Ohio and and North Carolina have dashboards, and they both of those states are now reporting information relevant to testing cases and deaths um, for each facility. So we're pulling down those numbers every day, and we're adding them up so that we have a cumulative count. So we're able to see, you know, in the Noose Correctional Facility in North Carolina, for instance, you know, they they were one of the first facilities to test everyone, and so we can see number of tests that were done, and then the corresponding um, number of positive tests. And so what we're doing is we're bringing all that down, we're putting it into a spreadsheet, um, and then we're doing analysis off of that, and then we're putting it back onto the website for the public to see. Are there other areas that you would like to explore and report on? For example, uh, would it be possible to share information about prevalence rates in parole and probation populations, or is that kind of beyond your scope right now? Yeah, so that's a great question. We have some data on that, um, only in the cases where the Department of Corrections is an umbrella under which uh, probation and post-release or parole fall. And so some of the states that have DOCs that are inclusive of probation and post-release, they are reporting some numbers um, in their community supervision population. We have those data. Uh, they're pretty limited because most states are not reporting those data, but we're not including that in our, in, you know, in our correctional population counts that are up on the website, but we have that behind the scenes. But I would say, you know, like a state like North Carolina, the Department of Public Safety is over both prisons and community corrections, and they're reporting nothing on community corrections. And so there's a, there's a, a gap in knowledge related to community supervision populations. And, you know, each carceral system also reports its data in different ways, right? 
Yes. And so that's been a giant challenge for us because, you know, we, we see the data and we've been tracking it over time. And so we, what we've been able to do is curate a really tight data dictionary. So if, if you were to go and to begin, you know, just pulling these data down, adding them up a contextually, it would be really difficult to understand what kind of data you have and what you're reporting on. But we have been able to, you know, using our knowledge of carceral systems, go in and um, say, okay, well, this facility is a community supervision facility. This is a work release facility. This should be included in this count. This should be included in this other count. Um, and so we've been really specific and precise about how we're defining our data. Um, we've also seen some inconsistencies in some of the reporting. So in some states or systems, we'll see facilities that have been reporting steady numbers and they disappear from the accounts um, and they're no longer publicly available. So we're able to carry those numbers forward, but we can also note that those inconsistencies exist. Some places, you know, they have a total positive count, but then when they count someone as quote unquote recovered, they're pulling that number out of the total positive. So we're having to go through and add those two numbers up to get a cumulative count. So a lot of the work that we've been doing is trying to define the data in the most accurate way and to put up a data dictionary that um, gives people the information that they need to interpret what's included in our numbers. Can you talk a little bit about how your previous research in public health and data collection is the same or differs from how you're managing the coronavirus data? I think what has been particularly important and is similar to this project and our other projects is just our pretty good understanding of like how Department of Corrections work, you know, what facilities sort of look like and what kind of data, you know, maps on to different variables. So we've been able to, to use our knowledge to, I think, do that in a pretty good way. I think it's different in that a majority of our research before this has really been not involving administrative data. Instead, it's been survey data or qualitative data that our team has collected and has control over, you know. And so when we're the ones who are collecting the data, we can put lots of important guidance and protocols around, you know, what kind of data are collected, how we're storing our data, how we're counting things, how we're defining it. And this has been pretty different because the states are defining their data very differently. And then we've had to come in, use some of our knowledge about the correctional system to interpret their data. And that that's just a whole nother level of um, oversight that we don't have a luxury of having because we're not the ones who are reporting the data. Right. Because you're only reporting confirmed deaths, but some prison and jail systems, they report confirmed deaths suspected deaths, you know, deaths pending autopsy. Your website says, you know, that some systems only report COVID-19 deaths without further information. Thanks for bringing that up. We actually made a, a change this week in our methodology because some systems began to report it so differently that we were missing giant numbers. And so, you know, up until now we had, we'd said, okay, well, we're going to only for now report confirmed deaths. And then in the case of Texas, I think their categories of death were something like presumed deaths and pending autopsy. And neither of those categories fit into that definition of confirmed. And we were missing, um, I think something like 57 deaths, right? So we made the decision in the last couple of days to make our definition more expansive because of how varied the actual 
data was. Um, but these are the kind of decisions that, you know, we're having to work together as a team and think about the pros and cons of reporting it either way. So I think that's another reason just why this data dictionary that we're rapidly working to put together is so important because people have to know, you know, when our data is up, what, what it's inclusive of. For our listening audience um, who might not be like looking at the website right as they're listening to this, can you talk a little bit about the numbers that you're seeing overall and also what you hope to share with the public by sharing these numbers with them? Like what is your, your end goal? Yeah, absolutely. So as of yesterday evening, there were a little over 30,000 total cases among people who are incarcerated in prisons, 441 deaths about 7,400 cases among staff working in prisons, and then 29 deaths of people um, who were staff in in prison systems. So I think the reason why we want to report these data is, you know, if you look at the 50 largest cluster outbreaks in the country, 30 of them have been in correctional settings. Um, And so you know, I think it's really important to know that one, this is really affecting incarcerated populations and the staff that work in those facilities. And I think the other thing that we're trying to really communicate is that prisons are not places that are outside of our society that are distinct and don't relate to the rest of us. You know, staff who are moving in and out of prison systems go home and sleep in their communities. Um, And so there are implications that are societal, you know, so it's impacting people who are incarcerated, it's impacting staff, but it also is impacting community spread. And so I think um, that message gets lost a lot. You know, we tend to think about prisons as something that if we don't interact with them on, like a lot of us do in this field, quite frequently, then we tend to forget those populations and our systems tend to forget them too. But it's absolutely negligent to not think of what's happening inside of prisons as a part of our overall solution to address the COVID-19 pandemic. We're thinking about new analyses every day. And so, you know, we're working on some mortality work, looking at deaths in prisons compared to um, general population. And so I think that's another important way to contextualize the um, the severity of what's happening inside of prison systems. Um, we're also interested in looking at exponential growth over time so that we can compare that to what's happening in the community. The major aim of this, to get people to understand that um, prisons are places where people live and um, people work and they deserve the same kind of attention that the rest of us do. And they're places where we can't engage in the same type of public health interventions because of uh, the built environment and other restrictions. Um, and so I really, you know, we want to post these numbers. We want to continue to look at all, look at the data and all the different ways that we can to show that this is an important topic and also to push systems to have comprehensive responses inside of their prison systems. So you can find us at covidprisonproject.com and um, there's some information about the folks that are um, behind the data and um, you can contact us there. Please keep sharing the number for our coronavirus hotline. We'll continue to air messages from prisoners who call in from the inside about the impact of the coronavirus on their facility. You can call in on behalf of a loved one, or they can call in to record their own message at 
765-343-6236. This has been KiteLine. Anyone can reach us via our P.O. Box, KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. You can hear previous episodes of our show at wfhb.org forward slash KiteLine. For more information on the stories we air on KiteLine, check out kitelineradio.noblogs.org. If you or someone you care about has been affected by the prison system, you can call us to be interviewed or to record a message to be played on the air at 812-269-2512. We also want your feedback and to share your story. Feel free to write us at kiteline at wfhb.org. You can follow KiteLine Radio on all social media platforms. If you want to support our work, you can find us at patreon.com forward slash KiteLine Radio Show. Any funds raised beyond operating costs will be sent to folks on the inside. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Please join us every Friday for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our community. Thank you for listening.